Does user-centered design at the forefront of ubiquitous computing, big data, and dynamic visualization excite you? As the leader in predictive marketing analytics, according to Forrester Research, MarketShare is a fast-growing startup building a world-class user experience team of interaction designers, front-end developers, visualization experts, and user researchers. If you have a strong background in application design and user experience, submit your resume at marketshare.com careers. That's marketshare.com careers. Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Here's your host, Laura Fedoroff. Hi, this is Laura. Thank you for tuning in to UX Radio. Today I'm talking with Dr. Susan Weinshank. She has over 30 years of experience as a behavioral psychologist. She's also an author, speaker, and consultant in the psychology of experiences. She specializes in applying psychology and brain science to understand and predict human behavior. Susan recently launched a series of courses on Udemy.com. This is an online training website with thousands of courses from photography to yoga all the way to user experience. Susan's courses are based on her books, for example, like Designing for Engagement and 100 Things Every Designer Needs to Know About People. Today we're discussing her latest book titled, How to Get People to Do Stuff, and we talk about the seven motivational drivers that relate to user experience. Here's Susan. So we've been doing a combination of classes, and and some of it is going back to like the foundational UX methods and processes. Because um, UX is growing and there's so many new people now interested in maybe not even becoming a UX professional, but in bringing user experience into their project, um, what we're finding is there's a need for, there's a lot of people who don't really understand, oh, what is user testing? Uh, What is information architecture? What is a task analysis? And so some of what we're doing now with the Udemy courses is coming, going all the way back and kind of starting with the basics uh, because there's, I think, such a large audience that needs that. And then, of course, we're doing um, what I think of as the fun new stuff. So I've been doing courses um, based on my books. So I have a course um, called Designing for Engagement, which is uh, um, comes from my book, 100 Things Every, Every Designer Needs to Know About People. Uh, so it's ca- kind of a combination of the basic stuff plus, plus the new stuff that we're teaching now. That's fantastic. And so your latest book is How to Get People to Do Stuff. Right. So I love that title. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's really interesting. And you kind of go through seven different uh, motivational drivers. Right. It's based around the idea that if you want to get people to do stuff, and we all want to get people to do stuff, right? Whether we want our clients to listen to our latest proposal, whether we want our colleagues to come to a meeting, uh, whether we want our kids to do their homework, right? We, I mean, our, whole, our days are filled with trying to get people to do stuff. And yet I think that a lot of times we don't think about how are we going to do that. For this particular person or this particular group, and I want them to do this particular thing, what's the best way to do that? There's actually a science, right? So if you understand what motivates people, what gets them to, to do things, you can actually pick 
given this group and this thing I want them to do. Here's the method that would be best for me to use to encourage them to do that. And that's really what the book is about. Why don't we go through some of those and yeah. relate it directly to UX? Yeah. So the first one is the need to belong. So right. it's making connections and sharing with each other. So how do you think that relates to UX? Well, we know that people um, really want to feel that they belong. They want to feel that they belong to, they actually belong to multiple groups, right? We have our neighborhood, we have the people we work with, we have our family. And it's really important. People will do a lot to feel like they belong. And some of the new research that's coming out on this is so subtle and so powerful. So I'm going to give you an example. Um, there's a researcher named uh, Gregory Walton. And what he found was that if you phrase things in terms of nouns rather than verbs. So his initial research on this, he asked people, uh, he, he did it, had people call and do a survey before an election. He would call and he would say, are you going to vote in tomorrow's election? So some of the times he worded it that way, but some of the times he said, are you going to be a voter in tomorrow's election? So sometimes it was a verb to vote and sometimes it was a noun, be a voter. And 11% more people voted when he asked them the question as be a voter, when he used a noun. Then he tested it with all other kinds of things besides voting. And, and his theory is that when you use a noun, when you say to people, will you be a voter? Will you be a member? Will you be a donor? rather than, will you vote, will you donate, will you join? Uh, when you phrase it as a noun, you are invoking this idea that I'm becoming part of a group. It's not just an action that I'm going to take as an individual, but I'm part of this group. And so the group would um, donate, because and I'm a donor, I'm part of the group. So something as subtle as how you phrase things can, can motivate people, can uh, encourage that sense of needing to belong. And that will then get people to take action that they might not otherwise take. So if you were designing, I, in fact, I, I uh, apply this a lot. I was working with um, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which is a, a group of atomic scientists. And, you know, it's a nonprofit group. And they had on their, their homepage, you know, donate now, right? And, and they depend on donations because they're nonprofit. And I said, no, 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 it's got to say be a donor. So, you know, that's a very simple change that I think applies to a lot of websites, right? Join, no, 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 be a member. Um, so that's one example of the need to belong. That's great. So why do you think that we have that innate desire to belong? Where do you think that comes from? Well, um, there's a lot of theories about that. Uh, I think a lot of the things I talk about in the book, like the need to belong, certainly like instincts um, uh, and many of the other chapters, it's part of our um, biology. I mean, basically, you can't separate our psychology from our biology. I mean, there are things that go on in our mind, but, you know, that's really going on in our brain, and our brain is our biology. There's constant you know, chemicals and neurotransmitters that are being released all the time. And these things uh, greatly influence our behavior. And so it's just part of being an animal, and a, we're very social animals, uh, and that's part of it. So part of it is probably evolutionary and biology. And then there's, uh, I'm sure, a component of it that is cultural and learned, um, because we are part of a society. But either way, whether it is learned or whether it is part of our biology, it's so deeply ingrained in us. It, these are all things that, that happen unconsciously. This is not a conscious thought. Oh, 
it's it's a it's a noun, not a verb, and therefore I will I will react. You know, it's all unconscious, and it's just the way we are. Right. A friend of mine, Angel Anderson, did a presentation on why we share, and it reminds me a lot of what you're talking about. It's um, what drives us to con- make that connection and to share certain things with each other with with some elite groups and then with some larger mm-hmm. public groups. Right. So going on to the next one for habits, which is your second driver for motivation, um, talk a little bit about habits as far as it relates to user experience. Well, we have this idea that habits are really difficult to form. And in the book, I show how they're not hard to form. And I think one of the things, uh, as in UX design, one of the things often in what we're designing is we want people to make our product or service a habit. We want them to come back again and again. I mean, if you think about um, if you have a website that is one of your favorite websites to make a certain kind of purchase, uh, for instance, um, you know, if, if you use Zappos a lot to buy shoes, then what happens is that when you're thinking, oh, maybe I should, you know, get a new pair of boots for this trip I'm going on, you just go to Zappos. I mean, you don't even really think about it, right? The same with Amazon. A lot for a lot of people, Amazon is a total habit. In fact, you know, it used to be they would go there for books, but now they just go. You know, I need to buy something. I go there. We all have our favorite websites um, and products and services and brands that we go to, and a lot of that is habit. We have formed a habit of using that product, service, or website, and so. Uh, you know, if you, I think as UX people, we want people to make our product a habit. So then you have to ask, okay, how do you get something to be habitual? And basically what you have to do is you have to understand the existing habits they have, the person has, and then you tie into one of those existing habits. And this is one reason, of course, why user research is so important, right? Knowing who your customers are and who your users are so that you could start to understand what are the habits they've already formed. They're already doing this, they're already going to that website, well now I'm just going to connect into that and make it really easy to go from that one to mine. Uh, Make it really easy for them to take that action and then take this next action. I'll connect those habits together and then it will be easy for them to make my website habitual. Yeah, I think if we could do a better job of articulating the value of uh, user research and showing those habits with the analytics and knowing exactly who your users are to clients, then they would be more willing to add it in the budget and add time for it. I think a lot of times it gets skipped, and that's really unfortunate. Um, but it's essential. I think there's a renewed interest. I mean, I was talking to um, uh, one of the people um, at my company because all of a sudden we had like three requests in a row for user research. Like, uh, it was like, oh, maybe this is coming. You know, it goes in waves, right? There are times when people are really interested in it and then nobody seems to want to do it. And I think we're now in a time when people kind of want to do user research. We've been getting a lot of requests for it. So that's, a, that's great. Great that news. Is. That is great. So for the power of stories, that's the next motivator. And I'm just going to touch on each of these. Because yeah, of yeah, course, everybody fine. can go out and buy the book and oh, read right. all about it. Uh, the power of stories is a little more obvious to me. You want to tell a good story. You want to 
walk them through this delightful journey um, within your site. But how do you see the power of stories relating to UX? Well, two ways. So one is what you mentioned, and I and yes, I think most of us realize how important stories are, although I don't think most people realize there's research that shows that we um, our brains process information best in story format. So that's one reason why stories are so powerful. But in the book, actually one of the more interesting things in that chapter is not about how to use stories um, to engage people, but how important it is to uh, understand the self stories that people are telling themselves about their own behavior and how you can change someone's behavior by introducing what I call a crack in their self story. So people have a desire and a drive and a need to be consistent in their own self stories. I actually use the phrase in the book self personas. You know, we know about personas in UX. But what we may not realize is that people have personas about who they are, unconscious collections that I tell myself of who I am, that then direct my behavior. But if you can get people to take one small action, one small step that is actually outside of that self-story they tell themselves, you create a crack in their self-story. And um, the example I use is, uh, I used to be a PC person like no Apple products, like, oh, Apple products, well, that's, you know, for the arty people, and I, I'm not arty, you know, I'm geeky, I, I wouldn't have Apple products. So that was my self-persona, right, as a PC person. But what happened was I purchased um, an iPod way back when, when they first came out. And without realizing what I had done, I had created a crack in my self-persona. And then, you know, when it came time to buy a phone, it was like, oh, well, maybe I'll check out the iPhone. And then when it came time to buy a new laptop, I was like, well, maybe I should look at... And now, uh, and I didn't even realize this was going on until my husband walked into my office, my home office one day, and he looked at me. I was sitting there. I had, uh, I was listening to music on my iPod. I was... Um, checking something on my iPhone. I had my, my, my Mac uh, laptop open. I think there was um, Apple TV in the background. I had an iPad. And he looked at me and he said, when did this all happen anyway? And it was like, oh my gosh. You know, I had done a total conversion. So if we understand, back to that user research idea, if we understand um, what are the self stories that our customers and our users are telling themselves? And if we want them to do something different, we can figure that out. We can figure out one little thing, one little action we're going to get them to take, one little thing we're going to get them to sign up for at the website, uh, a very small service that we're going to get them to purchase. But that will then open the door for, for much larger purchases later on. So don't ask people to do too much initially. Ask them for something really little to start. You've mentioned research a couple different times. Yeah. <laughs> so I was curious, do you guys perform any of the research yourselves or you just draw upon other studies? Um, oh, you mean like the scientific research? Yes. Well, I'd love to. I tell you, I'd love to do some research. And, and I have in the past done some of my own research, but these days... The research that's coming out is so, there's so much of it and it's such great stuff that basically I decided that uh, one of my roles would be to 
uh, keep up on it as much as possible, and then be an interpreter of it. Because you know, if you've ever read those those research papers, they're like, what, what? Um, so, and but that's something I actually like to do. I'm one of the strange people that likes to read research papers. So um, I I mainly following other people's research. That's fantastic. Yeah, as much as we can point to data and user or you know the testing within the research. Um, to see what people are reacting to, to understanding the noun versus the verb, right. or understanding the blue versus red, which is one of the videos on your website, and how people react differently to those colors. Right. Uh, I think it's fascinating, and I think, again, you can't separate the psychology from the interaction, from the human-computer human interaction. Right, right. Let's move on now to carrots and sticks. Okay. This one is a fun one. And um, I would love for you to apply that to user experience. Well, you know, I just came from a, a, a book tour talk in Las Vegas. So, um, you know, the casinos know all about reward. And uh, they actually are using uh, the a variable ratio a schedule of reinforcement. So there's a, there's a big technical term, and I'm not going to explain it all here. Um, but just to say that... Um, there are, there's a science behind how to provide rewards uh, if you want people to take certain action. And sometimes I think we are using that and we don't even realize what we're doing and we don't realize that there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. Uh, so for instance, website like Dropbox, which is for cloud storage, and if you get a friend to join, then you get extra storage. Well, that's using a reinforcement. That's using a reward, um, and and that's actually using a, a fixed ratio schedule, right? And I'm sure, pretty sure, they don't know that, right? And a fixed ratio schedule works in some cases and doesn't work in others. So in the book, I talk about the different kind of schedules of reward. So if you're going to use rewards you need to understand how to do it. Should you give a reward every time? Should you only give it some of the time? Should it be based on the number of times someone does this something? Or uh, should it be based on a time interval? These are all decisions that you need to make. I think the other thing about um, rewards is to understand that it's powerful, but only in certain situations. So some of the other things that we've been talking about and some of the other uh, ideas I have in the book are much more powerful than reward. So I would um, you know, include rewards in my toolkit, but in terms of UX, I would definitely work more with need to belong, with um, stories, with instincts, and with the idea of mastery. Those are gonna be much more powerful in the UX world most of the time than rewards are. Well, let's go into that. Let's go yeah. into instincts a little bit. Yeah, well, instincts, you know, there are these um, I, I talk in, in some of my previous books about the brain, and I talk about the old brain. And the old brain is the part of the brain that you know, is constantly scanning the environment and saying, uh, you know, can I eat it? Can I have sex with it? Will it kill me? Right? And, and, and these are our, our instincts. So we are, and this is bio, definitely biology, and it keeps us safe. I mean, that's why we're still here, because we have these strong automatic reactions to food, to sex, any, or anything that implies sex, like a picture of a really attractive person, um, or danger. Uh, and I think this whole idea of danger is one that 
I mean, we know about it. We've got, we know that we're fascinated by images of something dangerous happening, but I don't think we understand how much fear uh, really motivates people to take action. It grabs attention and it motivates them to take action. So if you want um, to encourage people to do something, you, you, you will get their attention and you'll move them to action if you can use one of these things, if you can use food or sex or fear. Now, um, you gotta be careful how you use these. I had one client tell me he, he was reading this part of one of my books and he was really, really excited and so they were redesigning their homepage and here was his idea. They make they, they manufactured like industrial cranes. So he was thinking, we'll have a woman in a bikini, because that's the sex part, and she'll be holding a plate of cupcakes because that's the food part. And then there'll be a crane above her head, like holding something really heavy, like a piano, and it's about to drop on her head, and that'll be the danger part. And I was like, I mean he really meant this. He oh, sent me no. an email and I was like Oh my God, you know, created a monster. So I had to write back and go, no, 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 I think you're misinterpreting. Um, but, so you don't, you know, don't use them all like that. But certainly we have to understand that if we have a messaging about um, fear, about fear of loss, for instance, uh, people are much more motivated by messages, wording, and pictures that uh, intimate that they're going to lose something than, than they are going to gain something. For instance, a sense of creating a sense of urgency right. in the way you're writing something. Right, and you create that urgency by making people afraid that if they don't take action now, then they're not going to get it at all, right? So that would be the fear of loss. I've got to do it now. My uh, The opportunity is disappearing. And that's the old brain going, oh, gosh, gosh, you don't want to miss out. You know, you got to do it now. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. So going into mastery, which is the next next motivator, you talk about the desire for mastery and how we have this need to learn um, either new skills or to gain more knowledge. So describe how that would work. Uh, yeah, us. I am really excited about this whole idea that uh, applying the desire of mastery. Okay. I think it's something that we don't necessarily consciously plan into our products and services and I think it's very powerful so yes as you said we have this desire to get better at stuff to learn new skills to learn new knowledge um, to be, we're curious about things and so if you can stimulate that natural desire for mastery people will be very motivated to you know use your product use your service so how do you do that how do you stimulate that desire well we know that there's some things that encourage this desire for mastery for instance autonomy giving people control giving people control about how they do something and in what order I mean if you look at the incredible rise of um, all these online learning uh, uh, websites, right? Udemy.com and Skillfeed.com and Lynda.com, right? And they're really exploding now. And and as you give people more autonomy about what course they're going to take and it's chunked into little pieces so they can do it at their own pace uh, and there are different levels of pricing so they can choose how involved to get, right? That's giving them autonomy. That's going to stimulate this desire for mastery. Also, if you show people progress, if you give them feedback on 
uh, you know, oh, look, you've completed, you know, three out of the 20 lessons already, right? This, I, that, that keeps people, oh, I've, I've got three, you know, and there's only 17 more to go. That's not too bad. I can do it, right? So that, that progress gives people, uh, increases that desire for mastery. So I think this is something that you, know, you definitely want to think about. Is there a way, you know, even if I'm, I'm selling software, you know, is there a way I can, I can chunk it. I can package it so people have a sense of, oh yeah, I could. We could use this. We could buy this one first and get get to know it really well and get really good at it. And then, and then maybe oh hey, we mastered that. You know, maybe we should get the next module, right? I mean, it sounds kind of silly that someone would make software purchases like that, but that's kind of what's going on. So when I was reading this one, it just made me think about uh, people's natural passion and, and what is driving that for them. And when you look at that and then you have the tool, if the tool is designed right, you can have that really amazing experience. Yeah, and I think this is you know, so much connected to, make, you know, again, knowing your audience because you know, if, I have a partic- if there's something I'm particularly interested in and I have a passion for, I'm going to want tools. To nurture that, I'm going to really want tools that make me more of a master at that thing, whatever it is, right? If it's graphic design, right? Some new tool that's going to mean I'm an expert graphic designer. If you message it that way, I'm much more likely to sign up. And when they get to that elite group at the top, they feel really accomplished and very pleased with going back to the need to belong. You know, now they're belonging to this elite Yeah, so, so you bring up this great point, which is these, these seven drivers of motivation, they don't work in isolation. They feed on each other. So you can combine the desire for mastery with the need to belong. So I want to become part of this elite group that is really expert at this particular tool. In a bikini with a sandwich. (laughs) No, 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 no. Not in the bikini with a sandwich. (laughs) All right, now we're going to go to tricks of the mind. Okay. So this one was really interesting to me, how you talked about cognitive illusions and... Um, explain that to the audience a little bit. Yeah, it you know, the, and this uh, it's actually one of the longest chapters in the book because there's so many different different ideas in here. But basically, the idea is that um, our brains are weird. You know, our thinking is weird. And Daniel Kahneman, in his book Thinking Fast and Slow, does such a wonderful job of talking about two kinds of thinking: System One thinking and System Two thinking. So, System One thinking is is easy and effortless and intuitive. I don't even have to work at it. So if I show you a photo and I say, oh, what are you looking at? You you look at the photo, oh yeah, I see a woman and she looks like she's on vacation. I mean, this is not hard, right? Whereas if I give you a, a multiplication problem to do, oh, now I really have to think, right? And so effortful and concentrated thinking, that's system two thinking. And Daniel Kahneman's brilliant idea in in talking about this is that system one thinking, that easy intuitive thinking, that's our normal state of mind. We go around doing this quick, intuitive, not thinking very hard most of the time. And that's a good thing. That gets us through our day. But it can be problematic. So you you can do things to switch people from one to the other. That's what I think is so interesting. Based on, for instance, the font you use, you can now switch someone from their normal system one thinking 
into a system two thinking. So there's just some, a lot of really interesting things in that chapter, um, but I guess the two most important points would be, you know, watch out because system one thinking will cause errors sometimes, that quick intuitive thinking people will make mistakes. And there are some times when you can purposely get people to switch into the more effortful training, uh, system of thinking if you need them to. How do you get them to switch into that? Well, you know, you're walking around with this quick intuitive thinking and not thinking very much at all. If you encounter something that's difficult um, to, to think about, like a multiplication problem or a font that's hard to read, essentially your system one thinking goes, oh, this is too hard and gives up. And, and says to system two, you take it, you know, take it from here. And so then the system two thinking will jump in. So if you want people to think hard, you've got to kind of surprise them with something difficult. Uh, may, you know, give them a multiplication problem. Give them, I hate saying this, give them a font that's hard to read. Can you imagine someone in, in usability in UX no, saying that? No, that makes me cringe. I, it is, but the research is very clear on this. You know, if I need you to pay attention I have to do something to make your system one thinking give up. Almost a disruption. That's right, where your system one goes, oh, 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 things are not easy and normal here, I'd better pay attention. Well, I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk today. It's been wonderful. Yeah, it's been fun. And share with everybody how they can find out more about you. Well, uh, the, probably the best way is to go to my website, which is theteamw.com, so T-H-E-T-E-A-M-W.com. And they can find me on Twitter, at The Brain Lady. Um, so that would be another way to keep in touch. Great. And all your books are listed uh, on Of course, I'm going to suggest that they read my books. Yep. Yes. They're all listed at the site. You can buy them uh, from there through you know Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, they're available there. And also maybe check out some of these Udemy courses. That'd be fabulous. And you also have a blog on your site, which I think is really fascinating. I do. Yeah, I do. You can get to the blog right from the website, and it's one of my favorite things to do. I write about all of the stuff. I have videos there. So that's a, if you're interested in learning more, that would be a great place to start. And is that where you're going to continue going, just broadening the scope of those courses? Yeah, I'm gonna, we're going to keep doing the courses. Uh, we keep doing our consulting. I don't know. Right now, you know, I've been writing like a book almost every year, and this is the first time I haven't, I don't have a book going. But I'm really happy right now to let the books I have uh, uh, take off and, and work on the Udemy courses. Yeah. Well, it's a great book, and we'll be sure to put a link on it on UX Radio as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more.